Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, a former World Vision executive is convicted in Israel of aiding a terrorist group. But independent observers say this verdict is a miscarriage of justice. We'll have details. And an independent report into the behavior of Christian musician Chris Rice found what it calls credible evidence of child abuse. We begin today with a major win for religious liberty. Yeah, the Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that religious schools can't be excluded from a main program that offers tuition aid for private education. That's a decision that could ease religious organizations' access to taxpayer money. The most immediate effect of the court's 6-3 decision beyond Maine will be next door in Vermont, which has a very similar program. Yeah, but the outcome uh, also could fuel a renewed push for school choice in other states as well. In fact, about 18 states so far have not directed taxpayer money to private religious education. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for a conservative majority that the program violates the Constitution's protections for religious freedoms. And by the program, he meant the current program, which restricted money from what they called sectarian schools. Maine's non-sectarian requirement for its otherwise generally available tuition assistance violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Regardless of how the benefit and restrictions are described, the program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of their religious exercise. That was a quote from Robert's opinion in this case. Our next story is about the Christian aid group World Vision. Yeah, six years ago, Israeli authorities arrested the director of World Vision International's work in Gaza. His name is Mohammed El-Halabi, and they charged him with diverting funds to the Islamic terrorist group Hamas. And he's maintained his innocence for the entire six years. Yeah, he has. Uh, He even turned down a plea deal that would have released him from prison in three years. Now, remember, he's been in jail for six years, so the plea deal would have actually been better for him in terms of prison time. Add to that, World Vision and outside auditors have found that no funds were missing. Nonetheless, a court in Beersheba found him guilty of terrorist charges last week. If no funds were missing, how could they convict him of diverting funds to a terror organization? Well, the Israeli government says, in fact, that he did. But they say that the information that would back their claims is classified. So what are the details of the case? Well, World Vision and two major auditing firms, a team of forensic auditors, the Australian government, and groups representing donors have all done studies into what happened there. In fact, they created a 400-page report that disputed most of the claims in the Israeli case. Now, Israel is saying that $50 million were diverted to Hamas, with millions being diverted every single year. But World Vision says 
says that that's simply impossible because its Gaza budget for the entire 10-year period in question was only $22 million. Uh, El Halabi has served as director of the Gaza project for less than two years or had served for less than two years at the time of his arrest. So he simply didn't have access to the $50 million that Israel says was diverted. So World Vision has stood behind El Halabi? Well, mostly, World Vision is in a little bit of a precarious spot, and that's one of the reasons why this story was interesting to me, because, you know, Natasha, we cover a lot of Christian ministries that operate uh, around the world, from World Vision to Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, I mean, the list just goes on. And a lot of these ministries operate in conflict zones or in difficult parts of the world. And so World Vision found itself with a bit of a dilemma. If they support El Halabi and he's ultimately convicted, which of course we now know he was, World Vision might have been vulnerable to charges that they were aiding and abetting a terrorist. Instead, World Vision's official position is that they have, and this is a quote from their statement, no reason to believe that the allegations are true. So they're not actually declaring him to be innocent, but they're saying that they've got no reason to believe that the allegations are true. Now, this case has been shrouded in secrecy from the beginning. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that uh, Israel said it was relying on evidence that it's unwilling to make public. And they said that they got a confession from El Halabi early in this process uh, that he uh, confessed to an undercover informer. But uh, there's also been some suggestion that he was under duress during that alleged confession and some evidence that he's been tortured while he's been in jail. Uh, even the court's 254-page decision has remained confidential and cannot be made public, according to Israeli officials. So what's been the reaction to the verdict? Well, many observers have denounced the decision, uh, some calling it a stain on Israel's usually reliable justice system. Uh, as a writer for Israeli news outlet Haaretz put it, either El Halabi is one of, the, one of Israel's greatest and most dangerous enemies ever, as this indictment against him indicates, or he's a victim of a cynical, cruel propaganda system that is exploiting him to stop the influx of international humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. And I should say, um, Natasha, that that is sort of the subtext here, is that World Vision is helping people in Gaza, which of course is consistent with their Christian and humanitarian mission, but Israel is not happy about that. So there is some concern that they are using this case just as a way to dampen or intimidate uh, humanitarian organizations. Now, Religion News Service ran a column this week from a Palestinian journalist. He also denounced the verdict. He said, rarely has one case so clearly exposed the injustice of the Israeli judicial system and the total control of the Israeli intelligence services in its deliberations. Um, it's high time that Mohammed El Halabi be released and the Christian charity that he has worked for, World Vision, be permitted to reopen and provide needed help to the people of the Gaza Strip. Orrin, we need to take a break here, but when we return, an independent auditor has found what it calls credible evidence that Christian musician Chris Rice sexually abused a teenage boy. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Our next story involves Chris Rice. He's a Christian musician who once won the Gospel Music Association's Dove Award as the Male Vocalist of the Year. Yeah, that's right. That was back in 1999. Uh, It was during a 10-year period when Chris Rice was one of the top artist in contemporary Christian music. I should add in a spirit of full disclosure that I saw him perform a couple of times during that era, and I thought he was really great, really fantastic. However, this week, uh, after an 18-month investigation, the independent group Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, the acronym for that uh, mouthful is Grace, says that it has credible evidence that Chris Rice groomed and sexually abused a teenage boy at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. Now, that's a Presbyterian Church in America congregation in Lexington, Kentucky. Rice declined to speak with Grace investigators, and I should add that Ministry Watch also reached out to Chris Rice, and we were not able to get a response from him. The grooming and abuse went on for eight years, but the teen victim didn't realize it constituted abuse or report it until Tate Creek launched a Grace investigation in 2019 that looked into Brad Waller, one of its former pastors. Yeah, now that investigation concluded that Waller, who introduced Chris Rice to the congregation, had also engaged in misconduct through inappropriate touching. So when Grace went in originally to do that investigation, it also you know, found this other information out. And the Grace report was about a year and a half uh, in the making. We we reported on it when they announced the investigation, and we've been following up with both Grace and with the church ever since. It's been honestly um, a little frustrating and difficult to get information from them. Of course, now I want to, you know, make sure that I acknowledge them for making this report um, open and available to the public, which they have done on their website. The, the Grace Report also included a public statement from senior pastor Robert Cunningham. He wrote, I want to begin by publicly confessing our institutional failures that surfaced. Cunningham wrote that to honor the wishes of the victim and to prevent Rice from victimizing others, he was responding with utmost transparency in making both the report and his statement available to the public on the church's website. You can find a link to that website in our story, which of course is at the Ministry Watch website. So what happens now with Chris Rice? Well, that's not clear, honestly. Uh, The one survivor that we know about has chosen not to press charges. Chris Rice has more or less retired 
from Christian music. He's now a visual artist, a painter. Both the church and Grace say, though, that it is important to take this investigation to its conclusion as a cautionary tale for other churches and as a message to other survivors to let them know that they can and should speak out and that their stories will be heard and believed. Our next story involves a prominent Christian foundation that was defrauded of a quarter of a million dollars. That's right. Uh, Though it wasn't the foundation itself that was defrauded, but one of the folks associated with the foundation. Let me explain that. It's a follow-up story uh, to one we brought you last year about the McClellan Foundation. Uh, Federal authorities are seeking the forfeiture of about $60,000 that they believe is part of a $250,000 $250,000 scam perpetrated by uh, against a Tennessee woman, but she was victimized because of bogus emails that were made to look like they came from the McClellan Foundation. The McClellan Foundation discovered in October of 2021 that the email account of its chief investment officer, Tom Lowe, had been compromised, allowing unidentified suspects to read his emails and identify identify potential victims. This according to the Chattanooga newspaper who originally broke this story. The perpetrators used their access to Lowe's McClellan Foundation email address to target Margaret May, a resident of Chattanooga and friend of Lowe's to whom he had provided investment advice in the past. Yeah, they sent May uh, an email that appeared to come from Lowe's account, giving her instructions to wire $250,000 to uh, a truest bank account, bank account for Randall Auto in Bradenton, Florida. Uh, They were able to keep the sent message hidden from Lowe in an email subfile. So it was a pretty sophisticated fraud. IT specialist brought in by the McClellan Foundation after the money transfer was brought to its attention, discovered the email account compromise, reported it to federal authorities as a potential wire wire fraud and money laundering case. By the time federal authorities were called in, only about $60,000 of the $250,000 was still left and federal authorities seized it. Yeah, and this latest move, which was uh, reported on for the first time just this week, uh, is an attempt to get that money back to the victim. One of the best-known figures in evangelism, Tim Keller, has been battling cancer for years, and he had a life-threatening health crisis over the past few weeks. Yeah, he appears to be better now, but Tim Keller's aggressive and uh experimental cancer treatment has some side effects of its own. His son, Michael Keller, took to Twitter last week to say that his dad was improving, but that it was there was a real scare related to that cancer treatment. In June 2020, Keller announced he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and at that time he had no symptoms. Yeah, the pink cancer was discovered just as a result of a routine checkups, which I guess is a lesson to us all to not ignore those routine checkups because what they found was a cancer that was well advanced, uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, in fact, um, had, and though he had been completely asymptomatic until the test. 
at that time, Keller started chemotherapy. He had surgery in May of 2021 to remove some nodules, and uh, his update shortly after that was hopeful. However, in September of 2021, Keller said that uh, due to a mysterious lump that turned out to be cancerous, his doctors were increasing his chemotherapy. Now, this latest cancer uh, scare came as he was beginning a new immunotherapy trial at the National Cancer Center in Bethesda, Maryland. The new therapy has shown great promise in potentially curing cancer altogether, though it is tough on the body, and some of those side effects were what caused Tim Keller's recent crisis. Warren, mass shootings have been in the news, and unfortunately, some of them have involved churches, including one that took place last week. Yeah, there was a church shooting at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Vestavia Hills, Alabama, last Thursday night after a gunman opened fire there. We first reported this story almost immediately after it happened, and our original story said that two people were killed and one was wounded. Unfortunately, that wounded individual ultimately succumbed to those wounds, and now we have three folks who have been killed as a result of that shooter. The church was hosting a potluck dinner when the the shooting took place in a suburb of Birmingham. Yeah, he was a lone gunman who was described as an occasional attender of the church. He opened fire at that potluck dinner. Police said that a person attending the church um, heroically restrained the gunman and held him down until police arrived. In fact, during a press conference held on Friday morning, a police spokesman said this, the person that subdued the suspect, in my opinion, is a hero, and went on to say that his actions were, were extremely critical in saving lives. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, up first, we have the story of Methodist Bishop Scott Jones, and he announced on June 17th in a letter to lay and clergy members that he was moving up his retirement from the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church from 2024 to the end of this year. Now, Warren, I'm sure that the bishop's family and friends are interested in this news, but why should we be? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I wanted to just mention this story because Bishop Jones said he made this decision in part because, and these are his words, increasing disobedience and escalating conflict within the denomination. He said that conflict 
was making his continued service as a bishop problematic. Jones, in fact, is a prominent bishop in the denomination, so his decision to retire early highlights the rift that is now going on in the United Methodist Church. Our next story also concerns denominational news. Yeah, it does. And I know that a lot of our listeners might be all talked out when it comes to the Southern Baptist Convention. Natasha, you and I have certainly covered it extensively over the past few weeks, part, of course, because of their recent meeting in Anaheim, California. But I wanted to mention one more story before we hopefully give the SBC a rest for a while. Um, And it comes from one of our regular contributors, Bob Spintania. He's written a masterful summary of the recent annual meeting of the SBC with a lot of historical context as well as some deep reporting into what's happening in the SBC today. Now, I'm not going to summarize that entire story here. I just want to make sure that our listeners don't miss it. It's on the front page of the Ministry Watch website. There's another story you wanted to highlight as well. Yeah, there is. Earlier this month, the Chronicle of Philanthropy published an exhaustive report detailing uh, what it calls a nonprofit hiring crisis, which is a crisis of staffing shortages and fierce competition over salary. Now, nonprofits are facing many of the same challenges that are sweeping the private sector job market. In uh, several surveys, for example, including this new survey from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, we're seeing high vacancy rates, salary competition, concerns about shortages and resignations, and more time needed to fill positions. When I saw that survey, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is happening in the Christian ministry space as well. So we asked our reporter, Shan Cuthrell, to take a deep dive into that report and then talk to Christian ministry executives to see if what she was reading there was true in the ministry space as well. And what did she find out? Well, she found out that for the most part, indeed, it was. She spoke with senior executives at Compassion International, David C. Cook, a large Christian publisher, and uh, the Navigators, and they all reported similar experiences. Uh, It's tough to find good people, especially in digitally oriented positions. And who did Christina Darnell feature in her Ministries Making a Difference column? Well, first, on Eagle's Wings, which is the division of Ron Hutchcraft Ministries. They're celebrating 30 years of working with Native Americans to share and spread the gospel there. What started out kind of as a one-off event, uh, an evangelism event on an Arizona reservation, grew to training Native American youth to evangelize and disciple their peers on some 100 reservations around the country. Also up this week, Child Evangelism Fellowship. It says that last year it shared the gospel with more than 15 million kids through its various programs, which include Good News Clubs that meet on public school campuses, summer Bible camps, five-day Bible camps, and its teen evangelism training called Christian Youth in Action. And finally, I wanted to mention MAP International, an international aid group. They've sent 155 shipments containing more than 300,000 pounds of medicine and other supplies to about 100 on-the-ground partners in 41 countries recently. They include Mexico, Sri Lanka, Ukraine, of course, Zambia, Honduras, and Lebanon. Now, I should also mention that MAP International is one of those ministries that we think a lot of here at Ministry Watch. They get a five-star financial efficiency rating from us, an A transparency grade, and a donor confidence score of 85, which means give with confidence. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? 
Just a reminder that our fiscal year ends on June 30th at the end of this month. That's just a week away. Our goal for June is $20,000, and so far we've raised about $8,000, so we're well on our way, but of course we have a ways to go as well. Uh, if you would like to help us get on track and finish the year strong, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. And I should add that if you do give before the end of the month, we'll send you a copy of a book I wrote with Christian journalism legend Marvin Olasky. That book is called Prodigal Press, Confronting the Anti-Christian Bias of the American News Media. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Stike, Steve Raby, Kim Roberts, Bob Smetanya, Shannon Cuthrill, Jesse T. Jackson, Jessica Lee, Mark Sherman, and Christina Darnell. Special thanks to the website Church Leaders for contributing material for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.